here we are. This is Sex Love Psychedelics, and I'm your host, Dr. Kat. Bringing you psychosexual conversations that will leave you intellectually turned on and hungry for more. Hey lovers, I'm really excited to share with you this conversation. As we were recording it, there were moments that my guest Aaron would say something and my body would have a reaction, like a deep exhale or or chills go down my arms. And when I have guests who are really critically thought and dissected the constructs of both our culture as well as their own personal constructs around behaviors, sensations, and the whys of it all, it really inspires and enlivens me. So today we dive into topics that are sensitive and complex in nature, discussing the black male brute archetype, how it came about and how it's perpetuated across our history and how that impacts sexual expression, tenderness, and platonic touch for men. Last episode, Yosef and I talked about the wisdom and nuance for growth and change. This episode depicts the impact to us and the culture at large when we don't take the time to understand or or consider the impact of nuance. As much as we would like to think that you know there's there's willpower to be able to say yes or no or make a change or it there's layers of what's going on and what's influencing our actions, our narrative, our uh, the way that we feel, the way that we act, we react. And much of this is in as as a result of the propaganda in our culture. You know, what we see in media, what we've heard from our family, from ancestral lineages all passed down. So as we talk about that here in this conversation, I hope that you'll take the time to reflect on how this relates to you and your sexuality and your expression and your uh, ability to allow yourself to be human. (laughs) If you resonate with this episode or there's some nugget that causes some deep exhales in you too, then I would love if you would share the podcast and leave me a review. Let's change the cultural narrative by inspiring conversation. And I hope this helps you in yours. But before we get to Aaron, I just launched the enrollment for my four-week course for Sexopsychedelics Alchemy. Each class is live online as I guide you into the potent space for exploration and discovery as it relates to BDSM, kink, tantra. It's a deep exploration. It's a practice. It's a celebration of utilizing and infusing tantra, spirituality, and sensuality in with the BDSM kink tradition. Exploring the full spectrum of our eroticism takes intentional work. It takes intentional work to deconstruct our concepts around sexuality and our own desires and pleasure. So if you've been feeling that your sex life could be so much more, I agree. And I want to share this with you. So this course is for all genders and relationship configurations because I believe that all bodies deserve to be worshipped at the altar of Eros. Link is in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. Now to my guest, Erin Johnson, who is a facilitator, a public speaker, and a touch specialist who practices closeness as a way to break down barriers between people. As a co-founder of both Holistic Resistance and Grief to Action, Erin takes the time to hold the stories of Black people around homophobia, transphobia, internalized racism, and those that are chronically under touch. Because the purchasing, selling, lynching, and commoditization of the sexual energy of Black bodies is a part of cultural, historical, and present American culture, the long-term impact of those trauma stories should be acknowledged and held as a map for our collective healing. Erin, I'm so stoked to have you on this 
podcast with me. I shared with you before the show that I went down a deep dive with all your lectures and your different podcast interviews and your TED talk. And I was just like, oh, this is so nuanced in the way that you communicate. It's, it's, I think that's where the wisdom lies is in this nuance. So thank you for coming on and having this conversation with me. It is an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me in. Yeah. I, um, again, shared with you before the show that this past weekend, I was speaking on a panel about healing sexual trauma with psychedelics at the Oakland Psychedelic Conference, which is primarily organized by BIPOC. And I was speaking alongside some really epic voices. And I really want to give name to these voices because they were so powerful in expanding the, the collective conversation around this. Uh, Courtney Watson, Mary Sanders, Danielle Negrin. And what I loved about what each of them had to offer was about these nuances in sexual trauma and, uh, you know, across communities, but primarily around BIPOC and Black communities, the, uh, the importance of the education around intersectionality uh, having an impact on our individual narratives and around trauma surrounding sex, um, around sex in our bodies. And, and this is where I want to start with, you know, us talking about intersectionality, because this is what makes each of our individual experiences of oppression as a result of, um, uh, you know, these past experiences different because of the context of whether it's gender, class, race, um, location, you know, where we live, uh, our religion, our ability. And, <clears throat> oh my God, I'm like <laughs> getting caught up in my voice. <laughs> um, but yeah, if we were to talk about, you know, how, you know, these contextual factors make it so that trauma or distressing events aren't digested by everybody in the same way. And, and I see that in the way that you talk and you teach and you, and you, um, uh, practice. So I'd like to start there with what you've discovered, what you've noticed in your own exploration. I think one of the biggest things is how at the first time kind of tracking what shaped my sexual story in America, um, I didn't even notice the subtle pieces. It was just like, this is the way it is. This is what being black and masculine in America is. I didn't even like, there was no, there's no like place to test it. And so for myself, when it starts to unpeel itself, or it starts to reveal itself, it's no longer subtle. It's like these big waves of of shaping narratives that stem right back to the founding of this country that talk about how black bodies are held, how black sexuality is held, how sexuality was constantly being weaponized, monetized, and used by the white hands that bring um, black bodies to the United States. And so for myself, I think by looking at America's kind of shaping force, there's such a skillfulness of, of story spinning, um, films, mm. internet, photography, there's so many ways that you're just shaped and without even noticing, mm -hmm. without even noticing, there's a story being told and sometimes it becomes a trauma story. I may refer to it in ways. So for me, what I have been noticing, one of the key ways is pretty early on, maybe it was in middle school, we got really clear, is the black male penis was almost a separate being than myself. It was like mm. such a big part of defining my identity that it, if you took it away out of my story, um, almost sudden I didn't exist. Almost like I didn't, there was no, there was no complexity beyond the kind of black boot trauma story. And that kind of surprised me um, when I started to realize that I had, I didn't even have control over the narrative around my own body, let alone my own sexual story. I felt early on, like I had control. And then finally I started seeing video games and films and modern day pornography and erotic images that weren't tracking this trauma story. I'm very clear, I'm not anti these images, but when they're not tracking and they're not conscious of that narrative, it becomes this really powerful unedited race story. And it also does a class too, right? So there's a way that class, you know, part of where African heritage really hit is that we were monetized in slavery, but we also were pushed down economically post-slavery in its formal sense. And so economically, it always has impact on how much resource we have to then express, hold, protect, and be in a safe space in our sexual story. So it's just so nuanced at first. And then as I see, as I peel it back, as the propaganda gets kind of revealed, um, I start to really see um, the big markers of where I get to interrupt and start creating my own story. So it's been a really powerful journey thus far in America as I kind of found my, not codes here, but I like cracked some codes. And I was like, oh, wait, that's how... 
that's why that film has that history, or that's why I walked through Blockbuster and Blockbuster existed in the hallways and didn't see any black tinder images on the front of any of the of the, of the DVDs back in the day. These yeah. are all kind of me kind of unrevealing this kind of narrative that sits in the background early on, but bring it to the forefront so we can talk about it. Yeah, which which is important for us to highlight. I almost uh, um, liken it to the concept of like a fish in water doesn't realize that it's in water. It doesn't realize that it's wet, right? Until it um, touches air for the first time. <laughs> and then it realizes, oh, something is, something's up here. What is, what is this? Right. And, and many of us can stay in just the space of non-questioning or non-challenging um, because that it can put us in a feeling of discomfort and feel risky in our body or feel threatening to our body. Um, so what inspired you to get curious or what do you recall some of the first indications that something, something may be here influencing you or programming you, like you said? Yeah. Um, I started with my emotions. Mm -hmm. I, I remember now 11 years ago, almost 12 years ago, I was telling my fiance at the time about the death of my father. I was mm -hmm. just telling her the story. And while I was telling her the story, she started to weep. And I was just in this, like I hadn't cried in 20 years up to that point, including the days and weeks and months. And then I'm telling her the story three years after my dad passed away. I had not really even weeped for him at all. And she looks at me after she's like, there's a story. And she looked at me, why aren't you crying? This is your father. I never met him. And I was like, that's a good question. Like, why am I not crying? I mean, the way she asked it was just so in front of like, let's look at that together. Like, let's, let's not just be mm -hmm. in this like, numb state and, and and there's a way i realized that you know growing up i'm a preacher's kid so um both my mom and dad were my mom's still alive but my mom and dad were pastors and so they that we would go to like six or seven funerals a year for almost a, a slow year might be two years two funerals but generally speaking it's two to five sometimes six and and so for me I, my dad would preach or, or lead a lot of these services and he would always stand by the casket and all the ministers would, but I would notice my dad because I'm tracking him since I was a munchkin. He would just shake everyone's hand. He would hug people, but he would never cry. He was just, he just modeled this idea of the strong black man in this context of like, I'm not feeling any of this emotion. Even the day his mother passed away, he did not cry. And I named that because that was just some ice internalized, that really good at just going straight, numbing my body and not feeling that. So coming fast forward to this conversation, my wife, to be and, and not my wife, but my fiance at the time, she asked that question. I really said, wait a minute, something's here. Something needs to be dealt with here. It took two years before I had to get back my tears. But the idea is that that was the first thing is like, this is not working. I appreciate, I didn't have to have like a stroke or a mental collapse to have that point. I could tell something was up. And so that's, once you start to, to deteriorate one little piece, all of a sudden you get suspicious of everything. You're like, wait a minute, like the, the, the tears are up. For suspicion here, I'm gonna best get that now. Touch is shortly behind that. I'll read it back about a whole entire identity here. So you start to read it by everything. So what I love about this is that you just start kind of kind of like it's like a, a, a big dam and you just like crack a little hole and bite why you start really going something's up. So I started to kind of catch that. And I and I saw that when I looked in the landscape of my black male landscape in America at the time and still presently, there wasn't too many examples of tenderness, of intimacy in touch, tonically. And that never, never was even a part of any of the images, the stories I saw in that as a, as a, as a storyteller myself and as a person that examines films pretty deep, I was like, oh, this is really not by accident that these images aren't available. And so, so shortly after that, I kind of started examining just the history of this Black brute narrative that I realized that I inherited it unwillingly, but I inherited mm -hmm, yeah. it. And my father was modeling it. His grandfather modeled it. This is an art piece. I can't find it. This art piece where I interviewed my grandfather and I interviewed my dad who are both passed away now. And I said, why don't we cry? It's this amazing, like short, like installation art piece I did. And he was just like, well, I don't know. I never really was model cry. So I'm saying my, my grandpa died at 96 years old. So yeah. he was almost a hundred when he died. So that's why I named his father almost 200 years ago was like, no, we don't cry. Like this, this, the black narrative is not just black group, but black group has an extra hurt there. So that's how I started to kind of get suspicious was the tears then mm -hmm. the touch, and then everything else started getting suspicious at that point. Like the whole identity of a black male, I started getting really suspicious about and examine it from a cinematic, from video, from a kind of a social experimental level. And that's kind of birthed over the last 10 years, the cut project. Yeah. And I, and I think any everyone could really benefit from looking at their lineage to see what 
strategies of protection or or um, solutions that they formed unconsciously? What have we inherited? Not you know by our colored eyes or or hair or tallness, and but by these behavioral patterns that don't necessarily just pop up from from nowhere from just ourselves, but to really take a look at what am I carrying here? Oh, that's rich right there. That's rich right there. What yeah. are we carrying? Whew. And you've brought up this image a, a couple of times, the black brute image and how that impacts our, our sexuality, our expression, our touch. Can you expand on that a bit more about uh, what contributed that? You, you said your, your grandparents um, experienced that and, and how that relates to this emotion aspect here. Yeah, the black brute narrative is pretty profound to slow it down. In, in my family structure is very alive and it's been it's been dismantled in some ways and examined, but it, it can't it can't exist without the overculture of America feeding that every day. The most funded image of the black male body, even to this day, is the black brute narrative. Let's be simple. NFL, black brute narrative, NBA, black brute narrative basketball from football to boxing to ufc these are all hyper masculine bodies that are now i'm gonna be clear there's not wrong being masculine and being strong but I mean, a, there's no tears there's no tenderness there's no there's no there's no actual mental health assessment of what's actually serving us it's just like grind your body until it's gone and we'll talk about how you know your mental health and your and your and it's kind of the back end the, mm -hmm. the families pay the price on that so the, the black brute narrative was born you justify lynching of black men, right? Mm. As much as, they, as black bodies were a commodity and, and, and something to sell and, and, and to purchase, when, when slavery ended, we needed a reason to control how to control them, right? How do we control? So that is hell a story. And some people can kind of probably Google this. It's like you can Google birth of a nation. That that film even clips where we give you a, a sense of this major blockbuster first early cinema is a narrative. It is a narrative of how do we tell the story of justifying controlling black bodies. How do mm -hmm. we do that? And so for me, the lynching brute is like, he's a big, large body, muscular, has an unsatiable desire for white women. Not any women per se. Now we've kind of expanded to like this hyper message, but back then it was white women, this thing that to protect. Mm -hmm. And so the only way we can do that is white men have to then either kill, control, or protect in that way. So that's kind of the, the simple broad strokes of the black brute. And that's still very present today. So that still lived in my narrative that when I got stronger, as I worked out, as I played football in high school, as I ran track, I got celebrated. As I got more emotional or more tender, I got dismissed. That was a, a, oh. a simple, like, where does it go? Where does it go? So for me, we're seeing that now as I'm 41 years old, that we have a, a society that's asking more questions collectively, but still not tracking the black brute near as, as clearly as I think we can. And so the black brute narrative is a very powerful story. It's it's um it's it's somewhat complicated, but really not when I look at just like the bare bones of how it's evolved to this stage. Yeah, there's a really great paper that I'm going to include in the show notes that that was uh, written in uh, it was published in 2019, and it talks about it goes through the history of of um, what you're saying with lynching as a way to create the seg separation and prevent interracial um, babies that might blur the lines of this of the of the um white white supremacy and so i'm going to include that in the notes in case anybody wants to dive into that and, and just really educate themselves on on how that's showing up so as we're thinking about this is in our environment and it's it's contributing to you know inner feelings of the nervous system feeling uh, you know, may not feel safe to to express our emotions. How were you able to to cultivate this skill of expressing your emotions and your tenderness, surrounded by you know, which you said it wasn't necessary, it wasn't received or um, rejection or like it's such a vulnerable thing to express our authentic human, full emotional expression I, I don't know um uh, yeah profile emotional profile now it feels oh it's normal it's i have it all the time but yeah. i got really blessed with a partner that encouraged it wasn't mm -hmm. confused about who i was got celebrated i got really excited got 
deeply moved when I showed up as my full complex self. Um, my full emotional profile was seen. So that, that that's a huge advantage because a lot of men I work with, their partners do not have that capacity. They're still bought into the um, non-emotional body, male body and particularly black male body. And so it's, it's a little more complicated to create. And I also had siblings that have two brothers, have one older, one younger, who also will back my emotional evolution. And so the, the people closest to me backed it immediately once I decided I'm going in this direction. And then I started building community around it, right? So I started going through song circles and, and mentees. And uh, so I started, I started nesting. Because I don't understand that people that might not have that ability, access to people, this is much harder. But for myself, having a nest of people around me gave me that initial place to start cultivating that thinking, cultivating that culture. And that to me was where I got it momentum. So I really, I just got blessed with, with a handful of five people, six people that were really surrounding me. Say, Aaron, you can be that. Maybe society's confused. Maybe your people at work might be confused. Maybe right here, you can do that. So I got to flush it out, work the muscle, stumble, get overwhelmed and balance myself. And that ecosystem was so critical. And I, I was trying to create versions of that for people that I work with. And I try and be a version of that ecosystem. I want to help create other critical mass of black bodies and and bodies, all races too, because I, I work with a lot of white folks, people in the global majority as a whole. But I, I prioritize black male bodies only because I realized it's it's not a whole lot of us yet that have found each other that are doing this. So I try and be that ecosystem. So you're you're a complete human being. You're no more valuable. You're no more less sexy. None of those things are a question here when you show up in your full emotional body self. And so that's the the thing that was offered to me. And I'd have language for it. We'd have like all the vocabulary and website back then. But the idea is that I had those humans. That was way more important than a website at that time. Had those humans that said, I see what's happening. This looks like medicine. I'm not confused. We can back you. That's how I found my way. I think it's a lot harder if I didn't have those critical people early on. Yeah, these resources, community as a resource for us to be able to touch back in when we go out into a world that doesn't necessarily uh, support authenticity and fullest expression. Yeah. Uh, I find that personally when I'm thinking of Speaking on, I mean, anytime you're speaking on sexuality, or for me, it's you know psychedelics or or kink and BDSM. It's it's um, it can be controversial. It can stir people's uh, feelings, <laughs> and so it's oh. like you know putting things out there into the public and saying, "Hey, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm seeing, and this is what um, I, I want to create conversation around that." And then you're met with people's unprocessed. Um, stuff or their own judgments or their own um, unconscious programming. And um, for you to stay in this space of openness and being sensitive and being sensual or connected with your body and to meet the discomfort outside there, how do you, how do you navigate that? I think what really helps is I, I, I was able to understand that normal entertainment was also very effective propaganda. Mm. And so I think for myself, when I stopped looking at mainstream media as exclusively entertainment and facts, which is like mm. in the backdrop, and started looking at it, I was like, that was entertaining, that was propaganda. But that was also prop very skillful propaganda. And so there's a way in which um, when I look at the um, the the way I consume mm -hmm. and the way I'm exposing myself to the culture, I don't come in believing it. And so that helps my nervous system really navigate layers of the mainstream culture pretty easily now at this stage. The other piece is, it's almost like, I remember one time I was at church back in the day, I was young and someone bring some homegrown tomatoes, like mm -hmm. little cherry tomatoes. And at that point in my life, I had never had tomatoes except for ones at the store that were like really like kind of rubbery, had no yeah. flavor. And I was just like, uh, I was, and I, I just thought tomatoes were to me, you know? And so I go back in the back and grab some tomatoes that were growing in someone's garden. And I pop one in my mouth. I was like, this is amazing. Like, what was I been doing with tomatoes all my life? What is, what is wrong with, what's wrong with the store? Like, why are all tomatoes taste this well? And so I didn't know about, I mean, you know, I, I did ag culture in high school. I didn't understand the whole, you know, ag business and what, how food got to us and how it may change the flavor, how it might get to us. So that was the way, but my point is that the tomato, is what I got to taste when I got to cry for the first time and be held as full being. The tomatoes got to taste when I got to be able to like follow in the platonic cuddling touch with other black men and we see each other. I got to taste the tomato and I got, oh, this is now easy. I, 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 I go to the store and see tomatoes. I might even buy one accidentally here and there. The idea is I'm not confused. These tomatoes are not complete tomatoes. If you go to like, <laughs> you know, Safeway, Costco, 
Stater Brothers, you know, if you go to like Whole Foods, you yeah. get a little better. They got some tips, like bumps on them, but not to put a mom in the store in trouble. But the point is that for a raised poor black child in the high desert, I didn't have access to a lot of these foods early on so they were growing out of their own, out of their own garden. So my point is, is that I, once you taste the tomato, it becomes easier to engage with Mason culture, a lot more empathy, a lot more uh, tenderness, a lot more patience, because you have that kind of exposure it's in mm-hmm. your body. And I think everyone I've talked to finally have crossed that threshold of being fully human mm-hmm. or more fully human. It's much easier for them. It's, it's painful. It's, it's mm-hmm. grief. Right. I feel grief when I get postured by another black male who's like scared and trying to like be strong and tough. And he doesn't realize he doesn't have to dominate me. I'm not trying to dominate him, that he is fine where he is. And that we don't have to, we, none of this dance is actually important. Mm. This is lineage that we don't need to actually. I know that, but I still grieve that. But there's mm. a way that I am no longer, I, I'm, I am so uninvested in that version of masculinity and black masculinity, particularly in the United States, that I feel very much grief, but deep, deep joy that I know the flavor of that homegrown tomato in my body. That's the piece that's easy for me. That becomes easy. Oof. Oh my God. I literally felt that in my entire body. I, I, I don't know if you noticed, but I just sighed with that. And, and it just, that felt really good to hear around that, that tomato. How do you, and, and, you know, speaking to that, that last uh, reference that you had or that example of um, uh, coming across another man who, who who who's holding that fight mentality and <laughs> you know in that in that fear state um how do you address that or how do you invite them into or do you invite them into this in this space of of tenderness uh, as much as i can one of the griefs of this work is that you can't get to everybody mm-hmm. um there are some folks that are too committed or just the circumstances are too extreme that you can't reach for mm-hmm. um what's been amazing is the majority actually are down if you have a little more time and space and a little bit of budget to do so. Um, sometimes you're in a store, you're in a parking lot, you can't necessarily, um, you know, do a six month workshop in five minutes of conflict or discomfort or, you know, whatever it might be. And the, the ratios are dramatically high of success when I have time mm-hmm. to just remind them. The word I'm using here is remind them of who they are as a full human being because all of us grew up as babies and young people we didn't have all this propaganda in our bodies. So I just remind them that they can be tender, they can feel and be okay with me. But they're like, I'm not, I'm not here today. I'm to show up tonight. So that, that's been huge. So the ratio has been high. The how is nuanced. It's, it's a phrase I say almost as a mantra every day. Stay creative while taking on the impossible. Now I use that in almost all parts of my life, but it's so relevant when it comes to trying to just break down those barriers that are constant in reaching across black man to black man in a tender place. And I remember working with a black man, he says, Aaron, it's to talk about sex, not a problem. So you can look at porn, not a problem. Look, it's like, I, I even, it's like, I'm almost numb to it now because there's so much images in myself or I, I get, and, uh, but the tenderness, mm-hmm. platonic touch, hair is in my body. Like uncomfortable, you have vocabulary, you have tools. Like if you, if you, if the, the tender platonic narrative is, is, is the most terrible, I don't have websites I can go to and just watch hours of brothers just cuddling on, on I don't have propaganda on Instagram, but brothers is cuddling all the time. I don't have like language. I don't have like all these people celebrating. I don't have music videos of hip hop or whatever else of brothers. I'm cuddling my homies in my stuff. I don't have any of that. We don't have any of that just narrative. We have all the opposite. So the narrative that comes down to us being able to be tender in this conversation is so hard to find. It's so impossible. Thank you so much. And so for me, I just want to bring in the context that when I look at Black men in this world and, and the intimacy they carry, that piece feels, it feels terrifying. Um, and it also is a medicine too. So I think there's a way in which the hard part is the human part. Mm-hmm. The hard part is the platonic piece. Um, the farther we go into actual sexual itself, it gets easier. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's like we, we, we've got videos for that. So for me, because tonic touch for Black men is not Googleable, um, that becomes the, the challenge of my work and, and, and why I, have to, I can't come in with any one idea. I have to come in like, I have to come in very much like an artist and being like, where is the heart going to open today? Is it singing? Is it, is it this clay ball here that I, I keep near me and I carry them around? Is it earth? Is it earth building? Is it some kind of sports? Is it wrestling and we go into a space? What is the, 
and, and music and earth building have been my go-tos, walking in nature with feet off and just kind of movement. Exercise has been a good entry point. So mm-hmm. we don't even touch each other for the first time. We touch like the earth and then we start touching like the air, notice the sun, then we start singing and eventually we get to the handhold, which is like, that's the first offer we can I hold your hand for a couple of minutes. That's yeah. that. that when we get to that point, that's Mount Everest right there. You know, <laughs> we can we can work out bench press 500 pounds, but to reach over and hold each other's hand for about two minutes, it's like, okay, Annie, you know I'm not good. You know, you know I'm straight. You know I'm straight. I'm just gonna hold your hand because you're homies, right? I understand all that. I'm not confused. Uh-huh. I just want to notice you. All of a sudden, the body settles. And that body settles, and we're holding hands like that. Seems like, like a year. It could take six months, a couple hours. But when that happens, that's emotionally like thousand pounds being benched. That's what that is. Wow. Yeah. And and so from the trauma therapist lens, it's it's as if you're bringing them through titration, meaning mm. little bits at a time and allowing yes. it to acclimate and not rushing the process any faster than what's authentic to it to occur. 100%. 100%. That's the hard part. Our touch activist is the increments. Because mm-hmm. you want to like, oh, my partner's been in touch for like 10 years. Let's get it like, and it might take another two years. Uh-huh. Let it take its time. Like that's when the big, for myself too, I won't put that on, on, a, on a touch activist in my program. Like me too. Like I, 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 I that's the, you want to talk about where I start to sweat is that part that, the time to let it happen. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And to the, when somebody's gone for so long, starved from touch, I can imagine that there is a part inside of them that's like, let's let's get, let's eat, let's let's do all the things, right? <laughs> let's dive in, let's change this. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. it's both. Some go too fast because they want to get past the trauma story and get what they might. Buy. We say touch balance, or some may say healing, touch balance. And some are so terrified. They're just like I, I'm almost frozen. I'm, I'm I'm one step away from being frozen, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's that once they realize what we're up to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, we're talking about oh, like and then that is both of those. I've, I've I've dealt with both too fast and almost a step away from freezing. Mm-hmm. And imagining how that impacts your nervous system, being a space holder, being you know facilitating that. And that takes a lot to be able to regulate your nervous system to hold hold that <laughs> that patience yes. and presence. Yeah. Yes. Wow. The you uh, you spoke to. Um, I, I like to think of these parts of us that get activated as parts of us that that have a fear narrative inside. You know, have this this um, uh, perspective around what's happening or, or how it translates what's happening. And you said. Uh, right there, Erin, uh, you know, I'm not gay, you know, I'm not, you know, right. And so can you speak to some of these narratives of, of the parts inside of the individuals you work with that, 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 um, that you hear maybe common, common narratives there? Yeah. So homophobia, transphobia come up heavy when mm-hmm. we talk about platonic touch. I mean, it's like, it's, it comes up day one, day two, day 50, um, we work on a day hundred, you know, it, 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 it comes up so much and, and almost primarily, and probably I, I examine this idea, right? The black brute narrative is one thing to examine, but the other piece that's important to note is that black people have worked. There's two things. One is that oftentimes, you know, buck breakers, you know, white slaves, you know, raping black men is a part of how they show dominance over them, which is mm-hmm. what's track that Trump story. Thirdly, if you're in 1968, you go to a lot of protests, you'll see them saying, you have a holding signs, you can Google it. I am a man, right? We were just trying to be men. We were just trying to be men. Like, can we just be men, right? And so, so there's a way that you have a whole generation that fought so hard against oppression just, just to be men and also been tracking this. So the homophobia is not just there because we want to be homophobic. It's, it's also steeped in how oppression has withered its way into our trauma stories as, as a culture a bit. We might not even process that. It needs to be processed. So the other piece is homophobia shows up because remember the most invested, the most supported image of black bodies is the black brute in America mm-hmm. today. So if that's the most invested in, one of the ways that black men get violence immediately on our bodies is when we get tender. Because if you think about it, if I'm, it's like, you know, a lot of these like pranksters on YouTube will like, will put their hand on someone's, on someone else's hand on, 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 on like an escalator. And, and a lot of times you get black men, they'll be like, want to fight. Like ready to mm-hmm. fight. Like there's no harm beyond just that. That was a violation, right, of their manhood, right? And so that the idea that we build our entire manhood off of our penis and off of our 
brute propaganda for X amount of years been on the planet, violence is so close. Mm. It's so close to the surface. And so for me, one of the things to realize when we start you know, working with that and start to understand what it means to find other muscles, other ways to engage with each other. So whether we learn a whole lot of propaganda at that narrative, a whole lot of shaping of our narrative. And so the reshaping I usually start with is slowing down mm. everything. Slowing down everything. And one of the one ways I slow it down, I remember I said with some black men and I said, this, this is our slowdown. It's an example of a slowdown. I said, um, so hypothetically, if uh, if we went, four of us went to this hotel room and we were going to share beds, mm-hmm. right? And 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 one person had a boner as your friend. And we were sharing beds, just two platonic friends. And, and, and he was asleep. And he brushed against you. How would you respond? The first mm-hmm. black guy was like, I drop kick him. Like he would get up in the bed and drop kick him. The other guy was like, I suck him so hard. It was never like, hey, hey, can you wake up? Hey, what you, can you, you're on my side of the bed. Can you move over a little bit? It was yeah. never came up. It was immediately some violent behavior. Like I went around, I said, how, how, how is it that we thought of only violent behavior for our friends? Uh-huh. When that easily could have been us being asleep. We could have been asleep. And we could have been so innocent not knowing what was happening when we were asleep. That could have been us. How would we want to be responding to? And they're like, I never, I never, I never thought about being me, right? Mm. The point is, is, it might seem simple. My idea is that like, we constantly just give something and say, let's slow it down. Why did your response become violent immediately? When, when it was an accident, brother was asleep. This wasn't a practical joke, brother was asleep. And he's your friend. We're all friends here. So the idea is that's where it is that the violence shows up because we're trying to, well, there's a lot of reasons why it shows up. But one of the reasons we track is that there's no analysis of how to respond differently to that interaction. So we talk mm-hmm. about, like, we're, so, we're all very strong, everybody, but we could have killed our friend accidentally in his sleep by drop kicking him in his sleep. We could have we brain damage, right? Yeah. Now, like, I, didn't even, I didn't even think of brain damage. I didn't even think about killing him. I just wanted him to stop. So there's so many ways to do that. And so we said, talk about So simple as it is, these are, these are ways in which I said, let's follow the logic here. So slowing down and follow the logic and then following where the hurt is in our bodies that make that make sense. Like what had to happen? That practice of slowing that down is the most tender part of the entire process. Really slowing down your entire identity and risking noticing that the big majority of it is a fake story. Mm. It is so tender to really cough that up. And so as I start, and that's not like kind of stop at that first moment, but that, that thing going off of someone's mind and heart is like, wow. Yeah. So I just want to name that. Yeah, it's like an awakening of whether you want to call it the matrix, spirituality, (laughs) and just something beyond self. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this this idea of slowness, when we're in a nervous system state that's either dysregulated or in hyperarousal, can feel dangerous. You know, what what happens if I calm down? Am I going to miss something in my environment that's dangerous or, or that might hurt? Um, so moving them, moving from a quick automatic reaction into an, a conscious awareness response. Yes. Yes. By bringing this information, the, the awareness in. Yeah. You nailed it right there. That's, that's the arc we're trying to close. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of, you know, all of this, you keep referencing the body and the body's reactions and slowing things down and, and, you know, grounding, putting feet into the earth. Um, This is, I think this is a monumental conversation to bring in this, this body piece as, as much as there's the, the mental aspect, the intellectual aspect, this body piece. Um, And I think that's what's missing so much in the conversation around consent and this idea of consent is this this intellectual concept of yes or no. You say you say no, it's a no, it's a yes or no. But there's a whole body reaction around consent that we can say yes when it's a no, or the body has a has a tense or startle reaction, and that's a big big no of of consent in the body. How do you how do you see that? Um, in in the work that you do with with the the tender touch and how do you how do you get people to uh, really understand that concept on an embodied level? I appreciate you bringing you bringing like three really big topics for me at least consent being one of them mm-hmm. the body mm-hmm. how do I bring in that um, awareness of 
what I thought balance to navigating that space and when the body's saying no, the, the voice is saying yes. One of the most important things is that one of the trauma stories of the black brute is to go numb. Mm. Um, is that oftentimes a lot of the men that I work with don't feel unless they're lifting weights, they get sore, like tremendous amounts of pressure on their body. They go, oh, I feel my chest, my arms, I feel sore. I got lactic acid. They can talk about it that way. But when they're feeling upset from a heartbreak or losing their job or a car accident, what it might be, of course, a death in their family. And I say, well, how does your chest feel now? Oh, I don't feel anything in my chest. And we say, oh, how does your arms, how's your legs feel? How does your back of your neck feel? What can you, is this going on through your whole body? What can we notice? Mm. And what I find is that when we start to slow down, again, this is the theme I said, slowing down is like the medicine, is that early on, the subtle pieces become, I feel like, I don't know people that work in like physical therapy, people that have like major accidents and they're trying to get someone's finger to move mm-hmm. after a stroke or accident or something. And you might see someone that does this for a living. They see someone's finger just barely move. They're like, yes, yes, your finger moved. Please. You know, I feel like I do a lot of that in this work where, where some brother's like, I think I feel something in, the, in my throat a little bit. You know, I don't get loud in the moment of my, my mind, right? You know, so my TEDx talk, in my mind, I get loud in my mind, like, that's not that, that, you know, well, slow that down. What can we feel when you throw an embarrassment? Well, so it's, it's that moment, right? So what happens is we build on all these kind of just muscles. We're not trying to make imagination, imagining things, but just really notice how much our body is so interactive. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important for us to take off our shoes mm-hmm. and walk barefoot on the Mojave Desert Earth that's rocks and sand and nothing really pokey, but just allowing your the soles of your feet to feel all kinds of stimulations because it echoes with the entire body, not only the grounding part of it. And so what we'll say is like you have rubber shoes on, you have Nikes, whatever, and you got those on, and that's that's a barrier. That's like that's that's almost symbolic for our trauma stories, our, our kicks that we love so much. That's almost when we take those shoes off, you go that difference you feel when your feet touch the earth. It's your whole nervous system. Mm. Right now, you got you got a pair of Nikes. Don't sue me. You got a pair of Nikes over your whole nervous system. You got a pair of Jordans over your whole nervous system. We have to come off uh-huh. and get that with the earth. And that is our medicine. Now, what's important to note is that when we teach consent to brothers that are chronically undertouched, they barely hear it. They hear it as constriction, as less touch for them, as confusion. But a brother that gets to a place of touch balance. It is so profound how all the consent thinking makes perfect sense on his nervous system. And it's easeful for him to follow the good thinking around it. And I think it's almost one of those moments I always track how hard it would be for myself if I was, like I said, coming off of like starving off of, a, of being lost in the, in the woods or in the desert. And you take me to a buffet and you go, hey, hey, you, you smell that amazing food. You haven't eaten like weeks. You know what? I don't just stand here and just smell it. Don't, don't. Don't you touch it. Don't you grab a little, don't mm-hmm. get a water just with your chapped lips and your, 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 your just sit and look at it for the chances of me being able to maintain that are a lot less than if I went to a medical facility and they nourished me mm-hmm. and they tend to my system. They got my all my my blood work done and I'm I'm finally at balance. I go to the same buffet and I can smell the good food. They say, Aaron, don't eat the food. Just observe it just for a moment. For maybe for a couple of hours. And I'm like, not a problem. I'm mm-hmm. good. Because I'm nourished. It's not not, not justifying mm-hmm. the starting version of stealing, but it's noticing how much different it is to teach one that's balanced and to teach one that's not. And there's a way that a lot of folks are in that starving state, mm-hmm. going to clubs, going to relationships, being parents, and they have no one's raising their hand going, you've been lost in the forest emotionally. You are starving. Mm. You've been cracking a touch for 30 years. Now you just got married. You're about to un- you're about to pour out your entire 20-year needs on this partner that has no clue is coming. Mm-hmm. No clue is coming. So that that's the place where I think I track the consent piece. I track the bodies. Can we can we feel that longing in our body? Can we feel the hunger in our nervous system? I know, I know the scientific term for for undertouches, you know, skin hunger. I think it's a very well said thing. It's like a skin hunger. So was, it doesn't sound scientific, but it's accurate. <laughs> and I love to name it that way because it's so on point of like what the body is asking for when it's been deprived of such a basic human need and 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 right in so many ways. Wow, it really drops people back into the um, the collective humanness rather than the othering but helps, I feel like in order to heal 
uh, some of the symptoms that we're seeing in our culture, it, it starts with this compassion. You know, I, as a therapist, I, I work with helping them to connect with their compassion piece, their self-understanding versus if I'm shaming them or if I'm, you know, judging them, it just perpetuates the the shadow, you know, let, let me suppress the this in the, into the unknown to protect myself rather than being able to digest it and work with it. Yes, right on point. Ooh. And when you're, so this is uh, the, your program is around the tenderness, the touch, um, the uh, particularly for the chronically undertouched um, and, and teaching them, you know, how to, yeah, essentially regulate their nervous system to be with the subtleties, the nuances and in their body. Um, what about different types of touch or different types of sexuality, or I'm thinking of kink and BDSM given the past narratives or, or given the narratives around, um, you know, black brute, or um, how do you, how do you speak to, I guess, what are your perspectives or how do you speak to different types of, uh, of ranges of sexuality in that way? That isn't just tender. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that so much. Um, early on in this work, when I proposed it into the world, you know, I didn't have really know where I would find a niche, uh, the kink community, BSM community and sex workers were the first ones that were like, totally. I work with chronic touch folks all the time. I get it. Let's get at it. And, and the key community specifically had so much more language and practice because they have the full range of touch. They've already examined uh, on, on so many levels. And so for me, it was so good that that this thing I'm talking about, platonic touch in mainstream culture is a kink. It's like when I when I propose this to people on the streets, we'll say outside of a workshop, outside of a content, it's like, what do you do? Like, how, how do you do that? Why do you, why, how, what? All these questions that never come from me. I say, I play football. I, I put on outfits when I was in high school. I run against each other and we smash each other as hard as we can. No one's like, why do you do that? It's not good for your brain. Like, no one, no one ever interrogates my violent behaviors when I was an athlete. But when I come out with tender touch, there's all kind of interrogation. Yeah. I mean, am I a safe person? So the king community just relax. Like, oh, please. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's a way in which I, I, I early on was able to um, build some deep bonds and some deep conversations, but almost, almost exclusively for the first kind of public years of, of the cut project, I say semi-public years, uh, the, 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 the level of consent, the level of, of conversation they're willing to have. Mm-hmm around how the rippling effects of touch on the body um, were profound. And one of the, one of the ways that it showed up really tenderly is that um, I was working with this amazing, it's kind of collective, but individual in this collective in the Bay Area. Um, and she was talking about how she bundled grief, orgasm, pain into one experience. And that just tells you right there of like, that's where the kink community can live, <sighs> right? And I, and I say that because there's a way in which the extreme that one perceives the kink community can be, and it has the whole spectrum. I, I have my own critiques of the whole community as far as like how they hold race and stuff like that. But I'm talking about the people that I've met that have been thinking really well, right? So no one's perfect here. But what, I've been able, what they've been able to hold is so ungoogleable in the mainstream world, but so accessible in a group of folks that said, you can be in grief, you can be in pain and also in pleasure. That actually can coexist. And that parallels a lot of what happens in our, my work. And so there's a way in which I felt at home, but not just at home, but it was a, 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 a necessity mm-hmm. to their thinking. I'm so grateful for, uh, I've been in this week for 20 years, 30 I love them. Like, yes, because they have a seasoned community that's in pushing um, perceived edges, right? Mm-hmm. Perceived edges of humanity in a way that I need it. And so I just have been benefiting a lot from being able to bring in the grief mm-hmm. into the orgasm, bring in the tears into sexuality and bring in arousal and tears are not necessarily outside this sentence in this like, and, and those two things really dismantle the black boot narrative. Mm-hmm. It really does. And so for me, um, I owe a lot of my current um, trajectory of work, my 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 best comrades. I was just with a dear dear friend of mine on East Coast in DC named Dragon, who's this amazing workshop on East Coast and in, in nature. It's just uh, so I, 
the whole episode, you definitely interview her at some point, um, around really what it means to find that grief, orgasm, and nature-based material working in the forest on tree material. We know about like ropes and stuff. Tree material is really huge in our heart story. And really able to handle all of those narratives in, uh, in our um, workshop I went to with her. And I just was like, I was a participant, a facilitator. And it's just really huge. So for me, I can go on for hours, but the, the punchline is that the language that has been used, the 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 practice that have been practiced and the thoughtfulness in the village of the King community has been a tremendous resource and community to be built to help us find a ground in the cut material because I'll say real fast, it's a whole different topic, but we have the chronically undertouched. We also have the chronically overtouched. Mm. And the chronically overtouched oftentimes are violated. Oftentimes they are in, in, in feminine bodies, but black men also been overtouched in violence too, uh, been touched outside of the consent. But because of those two things being negotiated, I think we have a lot we get to work on and heal in the key community when it talks about um, what does it mean for us to, to be in village and still track each other, not lose each other. Mm-hmm. When we drop into these darker areas of our identities, we're talking to this moment, shadow work, you might want to call it. But really, at the end of the day, it's the lightest, brightest, most beautiful work I can see. So we can call it shadow work, mm-hmm. but really, it's the sun. It's the vitamin D we've all been needing for a long time. God, Aaron, you are such an amazing human. <laughs> I love this conversation. This mm. is really fun. I'm going to have to have you on again, and we'll have to go Let's down do the it. rabbit hole of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. How can people find more about you, your work, and and just uh, you know be in support of this movement? Yeah. Well, cutproject.org is the website. You can reach for me there, and cut.project on Instagram is a, the way to find me there. And um, yeah, just message me. And, and if you're like, oh, I'm also your resistance.com, That's also great. I, mm-hmm. I check all those emails daily um, or or my teammates do. Um, I'm not the most, uh, I, I see them and they go, okay, this is really important. But I, either way, me and my teammates will get that email. Um, I try and go to voice messages and text as soon as possible. But the idea is that we can initial contact. Those are easy spaces to DM me in yeah. and to uh, find me. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was really profound. Well, that was fun. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. And if you want to experience more ecstasy and sexual liberation, head over to sexlovepsychedelics.com and learn about how you can join me for any one of my online or live events. And while you're there, grab my free guide on sex and psychedelics. Remember, this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider and local law before pursuing any of the products or psychedelics discussed. And one final note here, I make this show specifically for you. If you're loving the show, then be sure to leave me a review in iTunes or Spotify to let me know. Happy to be here and happy to serve. I'll see you next time on Sex Love Psychedelics.